this evening we're going to open up the Word of God together and we do so um, beginning a new um, sermon series and, it, and it's new for the evenings. I thought it was quite a good thing. I know, it's, it's not for those morning folks. Oh no, it's not for the early birds. No, this is for the late risers. This is for the night owls. And um, our sermon series um, that we're going to be opening up uh, seven weeks that will journey us um, through to Easter. Um, first Sunday of each month in the evening we have something a little different. We call it a furnace night that is of prayer and praise, simply celebrating God and enjoying being in his presence. Those nights look a little different. But other than that, we're going to be journeying um, towards the cross and does anybody know what happens after the cross? Now remind me of how the story goes. Does anybody know about this? Does anybody know something about a little bit about a resurrection? Does anybody know about this? Does anybody know that Jesus is alive? Does anybody, are, you, are you aware of this? There's some good news, you know. That Jesus Christ died in your place, in my place. He died to pay the penalty for our sins, to give us a, a fresh start, a clean slate. But he rose victorious. Did you know that as well? conquering the power of death and of sin and of hell and he invites us into that fullness of his victorious life oh that's good news does anybody want Easter to come quicker actually I don't know, seven weeks that's a, a, eight, it's a long way off it's going to be good it's going to be good but as we're journeying it was it was pointed out to me as I was reading in a book uh, recently the stories of the Bible, they've got some fantastic and fascinating details in them that if we're not careful, we just kind of skip and gloss over. Has anybody ever do this? You, kind of, you, just, you think you're reading the important bits and you kind of just miss out the bits that you don't think are very important. But maybe, just maybe they are. And even if they're not that important, they at least give Pastor Greg something to talk. No, 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 no. But, uh, we read, didn't we, how that, that same day, you know, Two of them, two of the disciples of Jesus, they're walking. And they're walking away from kind of the epicenter of things, Jerusalem. And they're walking to this town, Emmaus. And the Bible says um, that it was a journey of about seven miles. Yeah? Now, it, the reason why they say it's about seven miles is because nobody apparently really knows where Emmaus was. It's not there anymore, exactly. But they reckon that it's somewhere between, depending on how you measure it and the, the, you know, the, the number of these measurements, somewhere between six and a half and seven and a half miles. So seven, reasonable. Seven miles, a journey of seven sections, seven distances. And it was pointed out to me that actually when we journey with Jesus, when we're walking with him, that he wants to speak into our journey. And so as, as we're considering... Um, and over, over these next few weeks, this is what we're considering. The, the things that Jesus said from the cross, the seven last words or sayings of Jesus, that actually we can consider them as mile markers along the journey. So we're kind of framing this within this particular journey, considering perhaps a little of what was going on in the hearts and the minds of these two disciples. We don't know both their names, just Cleopas is the one that we know. And because... Um, we know the name of the, of the bloke out of the two. A lot of people have guessed that the other disciple was probably a lady and possibly Cleopas's wife then uh, because in those days they talked a lot about the blokes and not so much about the ladies. 
they, 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 they kind of learned that that wasn't the way of Christ. Um, one of the ways that Jesus shows us that is that he appeared to ladies before he appeared to blokes. Um, and so Jesus was kind of flipping the world upside down already. But, you know, people, they're not quite there yet. Uh, so they just mentioned the bloke, but possibly it's Cleopas and his wife walking along the journey. Seven miles. Hearts hurting. Eyes downcast. Minds of confusion. We had thought that he was going to be the one to redeem Israel. And for a Jew, that's kind of shorthand. For he's the one who's going to make literally everything right. And what they would talk about being the shalom, the peace, that total and complete rule and reign of God in the world. And he would begin to do that through justly restoring his people and then through them bringing the possibilities and the promise of God to the world. We had thought, past tense. And now there's a whole nother layer of confusion on this because people are telling us that maybe that wasn't the final chapter, that maybe we should turn the page, maybe something's happened, but we don't know. Who are we to believe? What's been seen, what's been heard, what's been tasted, what is happening? And so Jesus comes to these two, and, and he comes to them with such compassion and grace. John chapter 1 says that when Jesus came into the world, you know, people got to see the very glory of God. And, and the way that John chooses to describe Jesus is that he was full of grace and truth. And I like to think that maybe the, the order of those words is significant. I think sometimes if, you know, if Jesus were to come with the truth first, he probably would have just completely blown us away, utterly destroyed us. Is it possible that he comes as a baby because he comes first with the grace because we can't handle the truth? Anybody else want some more quotes from Few Good Men? Any, nobody? Any, no. Um, but he comes first with the grace. And he comes beautifully into our circumstance. And coming graciously as he does, he then brings truth to us. And so he comes graciously to these two. And uh, Jesus comes to them and says, basically, he says to them, so tell me about this Jesus. I think that's rather nice. Jesus comes to them and says, tell me about this Jesus. That's, that's grace. He doesn't come and blow them away. But he comes to them with empathy. Consider this as well. That Jesus Christ, he's just risen from the tomb. I, I don't know about you, but in our mind's eye, we would think there's probably other strategies post-resurrection. Maybe, you know, you should be calling a press conference or doing something of the, of the sort. You know, maybe you should be, you know, meeting with some dignitaries or something. But Jesus, in this moment... You know, he gets really kind of just down to brass tacks. He goes for a walk with some people. He goes for a stroll with his friends. Isn't that grace? Isn't that kind? Isn't that gentle and generous? This is your savior. And this is how he comes to us. And later on, certainly, he'll come to the place of truth. And he comes to them with a challenge. And he, he talks about how slow they are and foolish and how they don't really believe or understand everything that's been prophesied about Jesus. But he comes to them with this incredible grace first. And he walks with them along the journey. And the Bible says that he unfolds to them the whole hit. 
the whole story, all of the scriptures concerning himself. I don't know how you read the Bible, but it seems to me that the story of God here is truly a story, that God tells an incredible tale. God tells a tale of the creation of all things made beautifully by a beautiful God. A beautiful mind, a beautiful spirit, a beautiful God. And he creatively brings everything into being from nothing simply because it's an expression of who he is. He wills it to be so. And at the culmination, the pinnacle of creation, he decides, let's make humanity in our image. And so he created us, male and female, he created us, both alike in dignity and both alike in the image of God. And he imbues us with this possibility and promise and commissions humanity to bear his glory throughout the earth. You know, when the Bible, a little later on, through the prophetic voice of a man named Habakkuk, says that the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. I don't know how you envisage that, whether you think of glory in the abstract, but I like to think of an earth utterly stuffed full of glory bearers, of people made alive through Christ Jesus, filling the earth, as God first commanded us to do, with the glory of God. You know, when God, he, he, he raised up Adam from the very dust of the earth and breathed his spirit into him and bringing out of Adam Eve, he commissioned them and told them, be fruitful and multiply. Even when they'd fallen, God still commissioned them to go and to populate the earth because his plan was still that the world would be full of his glory. And it was hard to see how that was going to happen back then because these people, they'd fallen so far from such a height to such a depth and we knew that evil had entered the world and yet God says, ah, my glory's still going to come into this earth. So let me send out these people because I'm going to save them. Let me send out these people because I'm going to wash them clean. Let me send out these people because I'm going to reveal my glory through them afresh. And God's intent is still just to do exactly that. And yet, we consistently, time after time after time after time, rebel against God. Rebel against his goodness, his grace, his ways. We say, oh, it's better than your way, God. We totally invert the scriptures, don't we? When it, you know, the Bible tells us that God's ways are higher than our ways. But how often do we truly believe that? How often do we truly believe that in our living? Or do we live as though our ways are higher than God's ways? I think we often do. And time after time after time, this has been the history of humanity. And yet God graciously comes again and again and again to try and bring his people back to himself. Knowing all the while that it would take God himself to come to our earth. Walk among us. Love us face to face. Hand in hand, deeply, intimately, beautifully love us to the point of a cross where he would give himself for us. But you know, that's not the end of the story. Oh, sorry to labor the point, but Jesus rose again. You look like you might have forgotten already, but he is alive. And Jesus rose again because he's ushering in a new age, the beginning of the completion of all things, the restoration and renewal of all things. The Bible tells me that you and I are among the first fruits of this new creation. I don't know how you feel about yourself tonight. I don't know how you feel about yourself tonight, but if you're in Christ, you're the beginning of a new world. It's exciting, isn't it, don't you think? 
the beginning of new things. Jesus Christ, the Bible teaches us, is our big brother risen from the dead, the firstborn into this. And he invites us, draws us up from our deathliness. If we'll surrender our lives to him, and he says, I'll take you from that death, and I'll bring you into newness of life. And here is how I know that it's the beginning of new things, because even though my body may die, I'm going to live forever. I thought it was a good place to say amen. You're obviously not interested in what happens to me. Can I phrase it another way? Even though your bodies are going to decay, you're going to live forever. A few of you are more excited about that. Some of you are still not entirely on board. But this is the story of God. This is how he tells his story. And it is a wonderfully good story. And so God goes for a walk with some of his friends and says, tell me what you know and I'll tell you what I know. That's a good exchange. (laughs) Tell me what you know and I'll tell you what I know. And he does. When Jesus was hoisted up on a cruel cross to die. Hoisted up having been brutally fixed to that cruel cross. With nails through his hands and his feet. Mocked and used and abused, falsely, treacherously. There he is. We may even see him in our mind's eye. He's having to use all of his strength so that he can breathe. This is, this is the way of crucifixion. And it would be a way that would lead you eventually to suffocation. Because there's no way that a human being can hold themselves in that position and maintain the ability to breathe. That's why in the crucifixion story, the soldiers wanting to hasten the death of those being crucified came and broke the legs of those either side of Jesus. Not simply as an act of cruelty, though they were certainly cruel, but so that it would be even harder for them to breathe any longer. This is the scene that we have of the death of Jesus Christ. And yet from that place and from that position, to help us on our journey, because he loves us. Jesus used some of that precious breath to speak to our journey with him. To speak life to us. What was the first thing that Jesus said? Well, If you were to just turn the page back in Luke's gospel, you would find in Luke chapter 23 and verse 34, Jesus speaking and saying from the cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. Tonight, our focus is on this word of forgiveness. As we journey with Jesus, just like those two along the way, and I don't know, maybe we might ourselves encounter weariness of heart, confusion of mind, sometimes even 
deathliness might come and assail our spirits, even though we are followers of Christ. And we need to hear these words again. We need Jesus to come alongside us again and say, you tell me what you know, and, and I'll tell you what I know. And Jesus says to us in those moments, he says, this, this word of forgiveness. Father, forgive them, for they, they don't know what they're doing. And I, and I imagine you, we've read those words probably many, many, many times. We read the story of the death and resurrection of Jesus. It is, of course, the center, the hub, the, the, the heart of our faith. And we might have read those words a thousand, ten thousand times, I don't know. But when I read them, they always surprise me. I don't know about you. Because I hear Jesus saying, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. But there's always within me this sense of, really? They don't know what they're doing. What? Yes, they do. Does that ever strike anybody else? They know exactly what they're doing. You know, uh, to, the, to the literal extent of these soldiers putting Jesus upon the cross, they're professional executioners. They do this all the time. And then considering Jesus in particular, they've tried him. And the religious authorities have brought their worst charges and the civil authorities have prevaricated and gone back and forth on this. They have known exactly what they are doing. And they tried to dodge the question by brutally beating Jesus. And yet they still came to this place of crucifying him. They know what they are doing. And we're told in the scriptures that even the crowds, your everyday folks, rank and file, are mocking him and spitting at him as he passes by on the way to his crucifixion. And Jesus says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Really, Jesus? And were we to trace the story again, the story of sin from the beginning to the end of it, from the garden to the cross and beyond, we would find that over and over again, it seems that folks, people, me, we know what we're doing. I read Genesis chapter 3. And how in this beautiful, perfect world that God has created and placed his image bearers, his glory carriers into the world. And, and yet into this place, a serpent comes and he says to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. And the question comes again, did they really not know what they were doing? From the very lips of Eve, she says exactly what they know. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Really? 
Really? Didn't Eve just say that she knew exactly what she was doing? It wasn't Adam standing there so passively, not intervening in any way, shape, or form, not actually providing any protection or covering for his wife, but absolutely abdicating his God-given responsibility? Did he not know what he was doing? And the story continues. And the very next generation comes the first murder. And I don't know whether you ever think about this, but as Cain took up that stone and that rock and tried to bash the brains of his brother out because he was so angry and jealous and full of fear, when he did that, he's doing something that literally nobody has ever done before. Nobody could have taught him how to do this. How would he have known what the outcome would be? And yet something within him rose up, broken and brutal. And he grabbed that rock and he must have known that there was something bad that would happen. Or else why would he do it? And he did it. And then the blood of his brother cried out to God from the ground. And the earth continued in such a way and God speaks with Noah and they talk of the woundedness of the world and the wickedness that had come in every which way and God can't tolerate it anymore and they knew what they were doing. And we could trace through the history of humanity from beginning to end to this place of the cross and we know what we're doing. And when you and I have gone astray, when we've hurt one another, when we've broken fellowship, relationship with God, when we've wounded our world, we've known what we're doing. Why is it that Jesus says, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing? Well, I would suggest to you, it's the sense that, yes, we know what we are doing, but truthfully, we don't know who we're doing it to. In that garden all that time ago, the reason that sin entered the world is because the, the, the man and the woman stopped believing God. And they started believing another. They stopped believing that God would give them what they needed. Truth is, he'd already given them everything they needed. And they believed the lie that they needed to get what they needed in life. They believed the lie that somehow something was being withheld from them. And that actually if they would just rise up and take some autonomy and, and start to be in control of their world, then everything would come together. They stopped knowing the heart of their God. They stopped knowing their God. And when we stop knowing God, when we turn in and knowing ourselves independently of God, therein lies the possibility for sin. Adam and Eve in the garden, they somehow feel that independently of what God has already given them, they need to go and snatch the one thing that they shouldn't be taking. I don't think it's really any surprise that on the tree of our other story, the cross, 
they've hoisted Jesus up and there he is and he's offering to people forgiveness. He's giving people exactly what they need. And what are they doing? They're over to one side, dividing up his clothes and snatching what they should never take in the first place. It's always been the way of humanity. From the garden to the cross. And truth is, we recognize this within our own lives, within our own wicked and fallen human nature. God offers us everything we need, but we say, oh, no, God. I'll trust myself to go and get what I need. Thank you very much. And we know what we're doing. But we stop realizing who we're doing it to. And Jesus holds out forgiveness to us. Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they are doing. Has anyone here been forgiven by Jesus? Think for a moment about that dynamic. This is not an abstract thing. This is Jesus. He's speaking to you from the cross. He's holding out to you the very thing that you need the most. I I want to suggest to us this evening, Christian, and I believe that we all are here tonight. I want to suggest to you tonight We can't afford to walk away from that brutal tree, that cross, and carry on thinking that we're in control of our lives. We can't afford to receive forgiveness from the author of life raised up for us and then go away and think, I'm going to just go and get the life that I want. We can't afford it. In the garden, it brought sin into the world. But all too often, we listen to those beautiful words of forgiveness from Jesus. We welcome them into our lives, but we go away and carry on thinking that we need to get what we need in this life. Christians, the forgiveness of God means everything changes. It means we start again to perceive and believe that he is the one who is in control of all things. And rightfully and righteously, he needs to be sovereign over our lives. How might this play itself out in our lives? See, when Jesus, when he invites us to be forgiven... He invites us also into the way of forgiveness. Just this afternoon, I was chatting with my parents and we were talking about the TV series, The Crown. Has anybody seen this telly series? Have you seen it? Um, Like two people. Are you all Republicans? I ask this quite often in this church because quite often anything to do with the monarchy, you're all like, no. Um, But anyhow, there's this telly series and they were were relaying to me, and obviously this is not going to be a spoiler for any of you because you don't seem to care, but they were relaying to me about this telly series and um, and they were saying in this one moment many, many moons ago, the Queen uh, meets with Billy Graham 
And I know that sounds like the beginning of a joke, doesn't it? You know, once upon a time the queen met with Billy Graham and then, no, no, no. It's not a joke. It was real. And she, she met with him on a couple of occasions. But the context for these meetings was the fallout from the abdication of the, the king. And the king who essentially uh, not only kind of decided to walk away from his country in favor of, of a particular love that he was into, but also turned out to be a betrayer of his country. And in that context, the queen is talking with Billy Graham and she says to him, how do you forgive somebody who has betrayed you so deeply? How is it possible to be a part of that kind of forgiveness? How, how can it be? Billy Graham, in the, in the, the story, he, he, he says to her, absolutely, the way of Jesus is a way of forgiveness. And he opens up the scriptures to her and shows her how she needs to be somebody who can forgive. Forgive even such a treacherous act. But then he says something along the lines of, but to, to forgive, you have to first have been forgiven. To work in the way of forgiveness, you have to first have been invited into the way of forgiveness by Jesus. And apparently the, 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 the TV show, The Crown, it then it shows our lovely queen on her knees in prayer. And, you know, we can well believe that scenario, can't we? Although some of it is artistic license, but we see some of the evidence, don't we, in, in some of her attributes and, and the things that she says and does even to this day. But there's a, there's a real truth there for us. To act in the way of forgiveness, we must first have been invited into the way of forgiveness. A slightly less edifying story. Have you heard about the man that went to see his doctor because he was feeling absolutely terrible? The doctor gave him a careful examination, left the room to look at some tests, came back in with a really somber expression on his face and said, Sir, I don't know how to break the news to you, but you have rabies and you're going to die very soon. The man calmly began to take out a piece of paper and and began to write furiously, lots and lots and lots. And the doctor said to him, what are you doing? Are you making a will? To which the man replied, oh no, I'm writing out a list of the people I'm going to go and bite. <laughs> I don't know how you would react to such bad news. It's a bit of human nature there, isn't there? You know, forgiveness, grace doesn't always come so easily. Can I tell you a slightly more important story than that? I came across this week the story of a man named Michael Lapsley. You've probably never heard of him, but in April 1990, three months after Nelson Mandela was released from prison, he was working in Zimbabwe for the African National Congress movement. One day, he says, I received by mail an envelope with two religious magazines. When I opened it, the package exploded, destroying both my hands and one eye, shattering my eardrums and inflicting many other injuries. To this day, he says, I can clearly recall how when the bomb went off, I had the distinct sense that God was with me. I felt that the great promise of scripture had been kept. Lo, I am with you always even to the end of the age. Now, 
Whenever I tell my story, I am not bitter and I don't want revenge, but forgiveness. In reality, I haven't forgiven anybody because there's still no one to forgive. I don't know who made the bomb, who wrote my name on the envelope, who sent it. Sometimes I speculate about what it would be like to meet those responsible. Perhaps one day there will be a knock on the door and a person will be standing there saying, I am the one who sent you the letter bomb. Will you forgive me? How will I respond? I might say, excuse me, sir, do you still make letter bombs? No, he might reply. Now I work at the local hospital. Will you forgive me? Then I would answer, yes, I forgive you. And I would prefer that you spend the next 50 years working in the hospital instead of being locked up. In the Christian community especially, we often speak of forgiveness in a way that's glib and cheap and easy. My experience, however, is that for most human beings, forgiveness is costly, painful, and difficult. And yet, when it happens, there is mutual liberation. The Greek word the New Testament uses for forgiveness also means untying a knot. Read his story. Find it online. There's much more. It's really good. Untying a knot. Jesus on the cross saying, Father, forgive them for they know not what they are doing. Not as a get out of jail free clause because our sin is our sin. We're culpable for it. But rather recognizing the brokenness of our situation. The fact that we have bought a lie, removed ourselves from gracious relationship with God. Jesus from that cross, costly, painful, difficult, would untie the knot of our brokenness and would forgive us. And he would forgive anyone who will receive him. And Jesus this evening would invite us into the way of forgiveness. We can't know how the conversation went for those disciples, Cleopas and Mrs. Cleopas, walking along the way with Jesus. How God himself would graciously come to them and unfold all of the scriptures. But I bet forgiveness was a part of the story. The brokenness that was their experience. that They felt it pretty keenly. They thought they knew, but they didn't know. And the hope that they held, was it being dashed? They needed to know that God had still made a way for them. So Jesus walks with them. And he would walk with us tonight. And he would say, yes, I have made a way for you. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. I know that many of us here, maybe all of us here, 
We've heard that word of forgiveness once upon a time. But please, it's not a once upon a time kind of thing. It's a day by day by day thing. I need my saviour today. I'm going to need him tomorrow. And you know, if I'm going to be like him and invite others into the way of forgiveness, even if I'm going to be a person of forgiveness, I'm going to need him all the more.